Prophecy Update. That is Sunday morning. We're sticking with Leviticus here on Wednesday night. And, uh, you know, to my mind, I mean, I still think you want prophecy come Sunday or Wednesday. It really doesn't matter where we are. We're going to hit some. We're going to hear the Lord teach us about where we are in these days and how we are to be. And uh, so we're in Leviticus 21. I, I really vacillated. I was going to call this on being the perfect priest. I changed the title to the disabled priest because I think that probably is something more of us can relate to. And we're going to talk about that tonight and seek to understand something. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. So we've just changed direction. Understand that in our study through Leviticus, recently here, we've been in the holiness code. We're still in the holiness code of Leviticus. But for all the instruction involving the individual Israelite that we've had, and for all the teaching that's been going out to the community of Israel, that they might be holy as he is holy, so that the people of Israel could draw near to their God, we're now back to the priesthood. And the next couple of chapters, we're only going to take one tonight because there's so much here, but the next couple of chapters, he is talking to the priests, to the Levites, to the sons of Aaron about their role and about their job. And my friends, right now, especially in the run-up to the rapture, understanding our role in the church is vital. In fact, the relevance of this teaching is is great for you and for me. Well, Ricky's talking to the priesthood of the sons of Aaron, right? Exactly. Revelation 1.6 tells us he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I read that, and I'm excited about that, and I recognize it, but oftentimes it's real easy to think that this is talking about our appointments in the kingdom. Well, it is. The implications are kingdom-focused. We have roles and responsibilities. We are the royal priesthood. We are part of that holy, heavenly administration in the coming kingdom. But what about right now? You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you can turn there or just listen up. It's familiar, I think, to many of you. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter begins to talk about what our priesthood means now, not only then. Then remains to be seen, and much of what's taking place right now is sanctification and preparation for our priesthood then in the kingdom. However, there's immediate application right now. Because Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Not you will be, but you are. Followers of Jesus, we are priests of his. For what? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Again, remember the lantern we talked about on Sunday, that we hold that light up, that we declare the light of the gospel. That's our job in the darkness as a royal priesthood. He says, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter writes, behold, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of his visitation. We are a royal priesthood now. And that means that our very lives are a priestly proclamation of the excellencies of God. You know, we're not going in and performing the priestly ritualistic acts of Israel. No, we are walking as priests day to day, our lives the proclamation, so that others may join us in glorifying Jesus in the day of his visitation. That is a priestly role, it is a priestly calling for every follower of Jesus. Would that we had more training on our priesthood as followers. We spend a lot of time talking about, you know, I don't know, getting through life and daily struggles and and the issues that plague us. How about we step beyond that and recognize our priestly calling, which is royal and it's potent and it's God-ordained. Anytime we consider, as we're going to again tonight, the priesthood of Israel, that needs to immediately impact our thinking as a royal priesthood. The context here, the interpretation as it were, is he's talking to the priests of Israel. This is how you are to be. The application is we as royal priests can look at our lives and say, is this me? Look at how it applies to you and to me. How can we proclaim his excellencies? Verse one, continuing. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relative, who are, relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has no husband. For her, he may defile himself he shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people and so profane himself. Some things to note, six of them tonight, roughly. First thing is the priest and the dead. The priest and the dead. Death always means corruption. Death is the ultimate end goal. Death is the ultimate picture of corruption. And so the priest was to remain incorrupt, to to remain pure. So a priest was not allowed to touch the dead or have to do with the dead, which meant no funerals with this exception. His relatives nearest to him. He could go to, as a priest, he could go to his mother's funeral, his father's, his sons, his daughters, his brothers, and his virgin sisters. Which means I'm off the hook for (laughs) mother-in-law. Not that I'm planning anything. But it means that you cannot attend funerals. You cannot have anything to do with death. You have to stay back from it. Death of your immediate family is the exception. God allows that by his grace. Royal priests, listen. Jesus said in Matthew chapter eight, verse 19, a scribe came to him actually and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, well, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Can you imagine saying that to someone who just lost his father? (laughs) Hey, we've got a a church thing happening on Sunday. Yeah, I, I gotta go to my dad's funeral. I'll let the dead bury their own dead. 
I mean, it's almost unconscionable. Did Jesus lack compassion? Far from it. You all know that nobody has ever had more compassion in this world than Jesus. But have you ever known someone who used the death of a relative as an excuse not to follow Jesus? If I become a Christian, if I become a follower, what about dad who died a non-believer? What about grandpa who never accepted Jesus? If I become a follower, I'm condemning him. No, you're not. It has nothing to do with grandpa or dad. It has to do with you and your heart. Death is not to be a deterrent to a priestly life. It is not to hold us back, nor should it delay our priestly calling. That doesn't mean you can't go to a funeral, but let the dead bury their own dead means as priestly followers of Jesus Christ, our primary focus in this life is our priestly ministry. I was asked a question this week, and I I thought it was really interesting. The question was, why are Christians so afraid of death? It's a great question. What is it about us? We know the truth. In fact, we'll talk out of one side of our mouth saying we are running for the tape. We are looking for the day. We can't wait to be with Jesus. But on the other side, there's this, there's this fear of dying, this, this fear of death. Paul addressed it in the first century church, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, a euphemism for dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We don't grieve like that. Yes, we're sorrowful when we lose someone, a, a friend, a brother, a sister. Yes, we, we miss them, but we're not to grieve like the world grieves, as if that was it, it's over now. Why are Christians so f- afraid of death? And the only answer I can give, and the answer I gave this week is that Christians still fear death because of the skin we're in. As you've heard me say before, we're born again, but still in skin. So I have this born again spirit that that is emerging and wants to break out and wants to be with Jesus and doesn't fear death in the least, but my flesh gets in the way. My skin says, oh, and recoils. It is natural humanity to be very self-protective of our lives, and so that fear of death seems to be ever there. But as, as followers of Jesus, hey, we've been born again. We have a kingdom. We have a future, and it's not some vague, cloudy future with halos and harps. It is a kingdom. And then the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth after that, it's, it's amazing. Why do we still fear death? Well, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's when it'll happen. In other words, then we'll really get it. When this perishable flesh puts on imperishable glorified life, I will never again even have the slightest twinge of something like death because it's over, it's done with. Then we'll really get it. And then we won't have that 
Sometimes you see this in the church too, that bring it on Bravo mentality. Let's go to our death, you know? You got some people in church saying, we can die for Christ like Peter did. I'll die for you, Lord. And then you have others going, can we just talk about this for a minute? Just have a conversation. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. Hey, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, it's just gonna be our reality. And there will be no fear. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 continues, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, which highlights sin, reveals our sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So without Jesus, death is the final defiling result of sin. But with Jesus, there is only the certainty of victory. So I'll leave it to you to deal with the fear factor of death. Don't be foolish, don't go charging into the next truck running down the road, but at the same time, at the same time, recognize we have such a hope. And as the royal priesthood, that's our position on death. We just don't deal with it. I don't mean we ignore it, but we don't hold on to it. We don't cling to, oh no, we don't fear it. It doesn't define us, let the dead bury their own dead. Another way to say that is, specifically with those who have died, leave them in God's hands and you be a priest of his. You follow after Jesus. Verse five, they shall not make any baldness on their heads. Uh-oh. Oh, no, no, make, make. Okay, I didn't do this. <laughs> nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. And we talked about this. Again, this has to do with pagan practices. God saying, my priests will not function like pagan priests. You don't do what they do. You don't act like they act. Trimming and tattooing and cutting. All of those things had to do with, remember this, the Egyptian death cult? The reason why the Bible, why God tells his people no tattoos is because they would tattoo the name of the dead or a, or a picture of the person dead as a semblance of honor and worship, the death cult. They would trim the sides of their beards a specific way to honor the dead or shave their heads to do the same thing. God said, no, you don't do that. You don't act that way. And this all goes to number two, royal priests, our priestly disposition or demeanor. What do you mean? How does the world see you? We all, as human beings, spend at least some amount of time considering how the world sees us when we get dressed in the morning, when we look in the mirror, when we prepare ourselves to go out for the day. There is, at some level, some, some more than others, but there is at some level a thought about, what do I look like? How do I present myself to the world? Oh, that we would spend more time on that spiritually. How does the world see who I really am? The spiritual presentation of myself. Forget about what I'm wearing, what my hair looks like. Where's my heart? How does the non-believing world see you? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. Or maybe you've heard the King James translation just as legit, avoid all appearance of evil. Don't look like that. We will not, I've said this before, but I gotta repeat it, we will not lead anyone to the Lord by taking on the look and the behavior of the world. 
know, if we look like them, then we can get in among them and move among them and, and be like them and act like them. And then we can start to introduce Jesus. And what happens is the more like you act like them, the more you will be like them. We have a demeanor. Don't, don't do the cutting and the tattooing and the, and the trimming, you know, the Egyptian death stuff, God said, because you don't, I don't want my priests to look like their priests. You guys are not pagans. Don't act that way. Now, there might be a question, and maybe you haven't thought about this, but I've heard this one before. Why then did Paul say he was to be all things to all people? Doesn't that indicate he should, you know, have piercings and tattoos and, and you know, go into the places that everyone else goes and act the way that everyone else acts? And by the way, if you have a piercing or a tattoo, I'm not getting down on you. But Paul said all things to all people. Well, let's think about that for a second. Just listen to this. Paul in his own words, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, says, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those under the law as one under the law. No, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Paul lived by grace, but man, when he was dealing with a legalistic Jewish person, he came at them with the law. He walked it out as a Jew would walk it out. And he says to those who are without law, as without law. So if I'm dealing with a Gentile, I'm not gonna bring Jewish law to them. I'm gonna talk to them about grace. And we're gonna work at it that way. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, he says, so that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, he said, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. But, he says, listen, verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So the gospel's the standard. That's how I look. I look as one bringing the gospel, whether a Jewish man bringing the gospel or a non-Jew bringing the gospel or a weak man bringing the gospel or a strong man bringing the gospel. The gospel is my demeanor. The gospel is my disposition. It's how I look. I don't come at anybody to get them out of sin by enjoying them in sin. No, I, I bring the gospel. I'm holding up the lantern. He says down in verse 27, after giving some uh, athletic examples, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I love that verse. He's not saying so that I won't be disqualified from salvation. He's saying so that I will not be disqualified from bringing the message from preaching the very gospel that I say that I'm bringing. So the priestly disposition, the look of the priest, and I'm talking application-wise for you and for me, our look is to be holy to the Lord, that he is our focus, Christ-like, bearing his traits. That's the right look. Verse seven, they shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, the priest. Therefore, for he offers the food of your God, he shall be holy to you, for I the Lord, and for I the Lord who sanctifies you am holy. Number three. Talked about the priest in death, the 
priestly disposition or demeanor. And now number three, the priest and divorce and defilement. Divorce and defilement. The priest of Israel was not allowed to marry a woman who had gone through a divorce. At the same time, the priest of Israel was not allowed to marry a woman who was a prostitute. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> that may be kind of an obvious one to you, but not in the pagan world. Because remember, in the pagan world, harlotry, prostitution was a temple thing. It was all about the worship. It was all about their religion. And the point here that he's making is not to shame the divorced or to, or to, to um, even draw out the prostitute. The, the point is to emphasize the biblical purity of marriage. It's interesting, the priests were required to be married, by the way. They, they weren't single priests. They were supposed to be married. God expected it of them. He just wanted it done in all purity. Biblical marriage and the married priest. And this is something that Christians have sadly been very weak on in the past several generations. We have not stood strong for godly biblical marriage. We have been all over the map. I don't say that by way of judgment of any individual person. I say it more by way of judgment of pastors and, and elders and shepherds who haven't been willing to stand up and say godly marriage is one man and one woman as one flesh. That's the standard. How many leaderships and churches have fought for marriages? And we, we've fought for marriages here. We've tried to take that stand at least to say, this is what the Bible says. Ah, but pastor, you don't know. My marriage is so hard, it's so difficult. I, I, actually, I do know, that's, that's called marriage. <laughs> it is difficult. It is a challenge. It's going to be. That's the point. Part of God's ordination of marriage is you gotta work. It, marriage will make you unselfish almost faster than anything else. Parenting is another thing that'll do that. A biblical godly marriage. Remember, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we talked about Sunday, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and one of the examples that Paul gives is those who forbid marriage. You know what the word forbid means in the Greek language? It's koluantone, and it means either hinder, prevent, or deny. Those who deny marriage. Divorce denies marriage. It says no to the current marriage. Now, the reason, again, for the priest that divorce and harlotry are put together is not to say if you're divorced, you're the same as a prostitute. That's not the point he's making. He's saying that divorce and harlotry both here for the priest indicate impurity. The priest, you cannot be with someone who has been with someone else regardless of the circumstance. So you gotta have a pure virgin. The priest was to marry a virgin from among his people. Application, I think that you know, by faith in Jesus, praise the Lord, regardless of where you've been in this, by faith in Jesus we are made clean. We are clean. I am not among those who say that divorce is a condition of sin. 
Now, that's, that's a train of thought somewhere in the church, although it's slowly going away, that if you've been divorced, then you are forever the divorced person. And that marks you, and that's a sin that's always with you, and you're stuck in that place. I, no, 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 no. Divorce is sin like anything else. If you've been through a divorce, you sinned. You know what? If you've dishonored your parents, you've sinned. And we can go down the list of sins. And I'm not, at this point, you know, lowering the, the devastation and the heartache of, uh, of divorce. But the point is that, that in Jesus Christ, we are made clean. We have forgiveness. We have grace that washes those sins away. So as royal priests, don't align with things unclean. That, that's, the, that's the interpretation for the priesthood of Israel. Do not align yourself with something unclean. Someone impure, someone who's been with someone else, you've gotta be with a pure virgin. And so for the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself, listen, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's awesome. That's purity. And by the way, as Paul was writing in the first century, you read this, why would I in a million years think about connecting myself to a prostitute? Maybe as a, a, a long-standing Christian, you might sit there and go, it doesn't apply to me at all. In the first century, it applied to everyone because prostitution was temple prostitution. You went to the pagan temple and part of the worship ritual involved sex with a prostitute. So Paul was speaking very clearly at the time in the culture. We have a culture that is very impure. We have a culture that says it just doesn't matter who you're with or what you do. Remember, the Lord is calling you royal priesthood to holiness. You might say, well, what do I do? I have a divorce in my past. You come to Jesus who makes you clean and you pursue purity today and from this point forward because that's what a priest looks like. That's what a priest does. The priest and defilement. We are not to be a defiled people. Now, by the way, note this. There's a reason that he keeps bringing this up, that you are not to be this way. He says it in verse six, and he says it in verse eight. He says, for the priest, he offers the food of your God. And as one who offers the food of your God, you've got to be pure. The food of your God. Back in verse 11 of Leviticus chapter three, we heard him say this phrase the first time. The priest shall offer up in smoke on the altar food and offering by fire to the Lord. 11 times in the book of Leviticus, the offerings that the priest makes are called food. You know what the word is in the Hebrew? Anyone wanna guess? Huh? Man, close, good guess, not manna. The Hebrew word is lechem, as in bet lechem, house of bread. Bread. This is the bread of God. The priest offers the bread of God. Therefore, the priest must be pure because he is offering the bread of God. They were not to be defiled or have an ungodly disposition. They were to avoid the dead because they were the ones who ate and who offered the bread of God. The meat of the offerings and the bread of the presence was for the priest. 
Remember what Jesus said. Matthew 4, verse 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, he said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The royal priesthood are those, and we're talking about us, who bring the bread. We eat the food of God. We eat the bread of the word. We offer the bread of the word. How can we, with dirty, impure hands, offer people the bread of the word? They're not gonna take it. They're gonna say hypocrite. You're telling me what the Bible says. You don't live that way. So my purity affects my ability to be a, a servant who brings the bread. But it's more personal than that. As a follower of Jesus, there are things that I can eat or I can take that will make the bread of the word of God seem tasteless. I, I told our, our, our staff this morning, it's like McDonald's, you know. I've, I've, I like McDonald's. I'll just confess it to you. I know, I know it's all one thing. They've got a vat in the back and it's all the same stuff and they just go, cheeseburger, you know, french fries, chocolate shake, paper box. You know, that's what they do. It's all the same stuff. I get it. I get it's terrible for you. I grew up eating McDonald's. It's comfort food. And one of my favorite things to do is to go down, you know, at lunchtime and drive through McDonald's and get a, a cheeseburger and French fries and an apple pie and a nice ice cold Coke. I'm trying not to drink soda right now. I had McDonald's the other day with a nice bottled water. And I realized that it was the Coke that made the McDonald's taste good. But the Coke is bad. Coke bad, but Coke with McDonald's good. But it changes the flavor. It affects it, right? And there are things that we take in as followers of Jesus that can make the Bible start to be, ah, I don't want to hear that. Or make it seem tasteless to us because what we're feeding on in the world, what we're taking in in the world, that might seem so tasty, but it's killing us, Coke. We are those who eat of the bread of the word. We are those who share, who offer the bread of the word. But there are dead things in this world, worldly dispositions, impure, defiling behaviors, and all these things can ruin the word of God. So royal priests, watch what you eat because this is sweet. You know how the Bible describes the word as meat? It describes it as bread, describes it as milk, Describes it as honey. All the, I like all those things, especially the last one. And the great thing about the word of God is that it begins like milk. You'll, you'll take it in and, and it's light and it's palatable and you'll take it. But after a while you want more. And as you dig in, you realize, man, there's meat here. This is a meaty book. Man, there's protein and strength and I love this, a good steak. But eventually, that meat and that bread that sustains the more you feed on this word, the more it tastes as sweet as honey. It is so good to the palate. Well, let's look at the fourth thing here. The priest and his daughter, verse nine. Also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Now, I don't even know how the conversation came up. We have weird conversations in my family and I'm standing in the kitchen, kid you not, today when Naomi asked, asked me the question, not even knowing about this, 
ask me the question, Dad, is there any reason why you would burn me at the stake? <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what, there's only one, and that is you become a prostitute. And she said, not a problem. <laughs> but this is amazing to me. I mean, this, this seems so harsh, so serious. And the situation's deadly serious. Again, we're talking about the priest of God, a man who served at the tabernacle, later would serve in the temple. And the punishment, if a daughter of a priest gave herself to prostitution, was to be burned alive. Death by burning, capital punishment by being burned with fire, and we can't just explain that away. It's what it says, and it's what they were required to do if a priest's daughter gave herself to prostitution. And you might read that. It's, it is one of those verses that if you're anything like me, if you have even a shred of compass, compassion in your heart, you go, man, that's heavy duty. I, I don't know that I would have put that in the law, Lord. That's harsh. Remember this. This is stated ahead of time in Torah so that it should not happen. This wasn't a surprise. Oh, by the way, your daughter in prostitution, yeah, go get her because we're gonna burn her alive. What? What? I didn't hear that. No, they did hear it. God laid this out ahead of time. This is so deadly serious. So both the daughter and the priest would understand. Don't even go close to this. Serious business. It is love that warns. Love always warns. Love always says ahead of time, this is the consequence, so don't go there. And out of a loving father's heart, the Lord says, do not go there. To the daughter, don't go into prostitution. To the priest, don't have a daughter who does so. You need to love her. You need to raise her up. She needs to know who her dad is. She needs affection. She needs a father's heart around her and near her and encouraging her and loving her so that she doesn't wander off in the direction of prostitution. And again, you may say, okay, just kind of seems weird. I mean, that seems extreme. Why are we even talking about daughter going into prostitution? Isn't that kind of a rare thing? Not in those days. Because the implication here is, again, temple prostitution. So a daughter of a priest of the Lord who gets drawn into idolatry and paganism and goes down that road, temple prostitution was a high position for a woman in the pagan world. And to go down that road, that's what he's warning against. And he's about to send his children, Israel, into this hotbed of Canaanite paganism. They are to drive it all out, but God knows the, the stuff is gonna be there. So daughters, don't even think about going there. And priests, you make sure you father your daughter. Understand this. Again, this is not just any daughter of Israel, by the way. This punishment is specifically for the daughter of a priest, a PK, <laughs> priest kid. But secondly, it's also one who has chosen to play the harlot. But you know, this reminds me, and you read through this, this whole list, and start to realize, wow, the standard for a priestly family was higher than for any other. If you're a Levite, if you're a priest in Israel, the standard's big. And it is different. If you're gonna serve God in that way, more is expected of you, more is demanded of you than for the common Israelite. I was thinking about what Paul said. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, when he's talking to overseers and elders and shepherds, those who, who lead a fellowship or, or pastor a congregation, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, if you stop right there, you go, yeah, that's a fine work. Sounds good. I'd like to be involved with that. What do I need to do? An overseer then must be above reproach. <laughs> Breaks on. You just lost everybody. Above reproach? Haven't we all at some point been reproachful? Haven't we all done something that, yeah, okay, yeah, I, needs forgiveness? And he goes on and gives several things in that list of qualifications for a, a pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop. It's all the same word, elder. And in verse four of 1 Timothy 3, he says, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The Lord says, you want to lead a church? It starts at home. It starts with your own children. You lead them. And you manage them. And through that, you will learn to shepherd others. James Chapter three, verse one, he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. That's not just the judgment of the Lord. That's not the higher expectation necessarily of the Lord. That's, that's of everyone. You're gonna sit up there and, and pretend to teach the Bible or share the word of God? <laughs> People are gonna watch. They're gonna question. They're gonna wonder. But aren't we all called to be priests? Isn't that for every one of us? Aren't we all called at some level to be teachers? I mean, Paul said that Hebrews chapter six, or the, the Hebrew pastor in Hebrews chapter six made that comment, by now you should all be teachers. I mean, if, if we're followers of Jesus, if we're a royal priesthood, then we are those who make proclamation of the truth of the word of God, then we all ought to be at some level in our lives teachers of this word. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse eight, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven, which is why I think Naomi calls me dad man rather than father. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The priest managing his household, the, the priest who has a standard that he lives by before all people is to be a humble servant, a humble servant, and that starts at home and I like what Charles Spurgeon says, and he was talking to pastors, but I think this applies to all of us. He says, whatever call a man may pretend to have, if he has not been called to holiness, he certainly has not been called to the ministry. It's not ministry first and then holiness, it's holiness first and then ministry. I remember as a 16-year-old talking to Murray, Murray Isaac, man who had a, a great impact on me as a teenager and, and in ministry, his youth pastor. Just a sweetest guy. I remember sitting around a campfire with him 
up in Yosemite one year, and we were just talking, and, and I was really feeling called to ministry, 16, and I was feeling like, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do, and I, and I started asking him about this. Murray, what do you think? And, and he said something completely unexpected by me, and something I've actually heard said to other pastors, and I've said to others nowadays, if you can find joy in doing anything else, do it. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah. He said, Rick, don't go into ministry unless you just can't do anything else. And I, man, I was taken aback. I'm like, what are you talking about? That came to mind when I got an email this week and, and one of the lines in the email actually said, it must be nice to be a pastor and be around people who always think like you do. I was just thinking <coughs> how funny it would be if I kept my water up here <clears throat> in a flask. <coughs> People are not like-minded <coughs> in the church as much as we're supposed to be, and I just went down the wrong tube. Give me a second, will you? <coughs> I hate when I do that. All right. <clears throat> Where are we? What are we talking about? Ministry, right. <laughs> Following Jesus, we are royal priests. And the mo here's the thing. The moment we accept the lordship of Jesus, we enter our royal service. You may not realize it. A lot of people give their hearts, their lives to Jesus Christ. They don't realize they've just been signed up for the priesthood. But that's the truth. And that's what has just happened. We accept the high standard of servitude. All of us, pastors and parishioners, I don't even like the designation, the difference. You know, we're, we're all followers of Jesus Christ, and we all have a call. And that call begins at home, back to the priest and his daughter, priest and his son, priest and his family. Man, how we are to our family. If I can't love my family like Jesus, how am I going to do it out there? But the high standard of servitude, the high standard of being a royal priesthood in a holy nation, my friends, it is not nearly as high as the standard for the high priest. Watch the difference here. Call this number five, the high priest's devotion. Verse 10. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. That's the priestly garb that we, we've talked about earlier in Leviticus. The one who wears these things shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father or his mother. Can't go to mom or dad's funeral if you're the high priest. You don't go to funerals at all if you're the high priest. He says in verse 12, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him, I am the Lord. Now, understand, that doesn't mean he could never go out of the sanctuary. That wouldn't make sense, because even the high priest was to have a godly wife and children and a home and, and a life. So what does it mean he, doesn't, he shall not go out of the sanctuary if there's a funeral? If someone's died, you don't leave the sanctuary for it. 
You you don't go out for these things. You can't attend a funeral even for your closest, closest family members. The other priest could do that. The high priest couldn't. Aaron didn't. Do you remember what happened? Nadab and Abihu were just fired from their positions. And Moses immediately, I didn't see, Deb loves that. I'm gonna say it every time just for you. I am. In chapter 10, verse six, immediately after this happened, they are carrying the burnt corpses of these two young men out. And Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and he will not become wrathful against the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. And here this is laid in on every high priest. What started with Aaron and the loss of his sons, any high priest down the line was never to do these things. The the tearing of the clothes and, and the uncovering of the head, all of that, that was funeral behavior. That was mourning for the dead. And the high priest was not to do that. The high priestly devotion was to life the life of the people of Israel. These high priestly descriptions, interesting, call for a strict devotion to the Lord, even over death itself. Your devotion is to the Lord. Your devotion is to your people. Now, we could make application to ourselves saying, what about us? How do we have that kind of devotion? Are we supposed to move into the church and live there? No, your heart is to remain with God's people always. Your heart's to remain in the sanctuary, to remain with the presence of God, with complete devotion to God and his people. And when it comes to death, we don't go around tearing our clothes and uncovering our heads and and going just wandering, weeping through the funeral because we have a different hope as we read before. Don't grieve as others do who have no hope. You have hope. And so we are to look different and be different I think about Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, saying, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I've said, wow. I have enough trouble having concern for just one. He had them all, you know? And he's always thinking about, you can see it, you, you sense it in Paul's letters and his writings, he is always thinking about his brothers and sisters. He is always concerned for them, worried about them, praying for them in every life, every day of his life. And in all of his writings, Paul is, he's thinking about the church. He's thinking about his brothers and sisters. He's concerned for them. And that's what a priest does as members of the royal priesthood. Man, think think the common priest was under a high standard? Consider the standard that was on the high priest. And if you think sometimes considering these things, we're under a high standard as followers of Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 says, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. When the standard of your priesthood, of my priesthood seems high, stop for a moment and consider Jesus. He was held to the highest possible standard as our great high priest. And by the way, he lived it to perfection. 
I do think it's interesting here that it is mentioned that, again, related to funerals and mourning and all of that, that the high priest wearing those garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Do you realize that the moment Caiaphas tore his robes, Matthew 26, verse 65, he disqualified himself as the high priest. In the presence of Jesus, as they're asking Jesus, tell us whether or not you're the son of God, he rips his robe and was immediately, should have been immediately kicked out of office, impeached, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, at the cross, Note this, the clothing of our great high priest Jesus was not torn a single stitch. Fulfilling prophecy, John 19, 23, the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was, John says, to fulfill the scripture Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18, they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the high priest tore his clothes, dis disqualified. Jesus' clothes were never torn. Our great high priest remains. Now, now watch this, verse 13. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or one who has, is profaned by harlotry, these he may not take. Now, he's not making judgment on, on these three things, although harlotry, you can make some judgment, but, but on the other two, he's not, he's not saying this is a sick, sinful woman. He's just saying that you cannot be with a woman who has been with another man, period, if you're in the priesthood or if you're the high priest. But rather, he is to marry a virgin of his own people so that he will not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. The high priest was to take a pure virgin for his bride. Ephesians 5.25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That is virginal. One of the remarkable things about grace is regardless of the life I lived before, when I come into fellowship with Jesus, when I am born again, I am cleansed. I'm a pure virgin in the eyes of God by the blood of Christ. That's remarkable. And Jesus does this because the bride of the high priest has to be pure, must be spotless. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5 continues to describe husband and wife love a little bit more, but then he writes, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, this mystery is great. And I would agree. <laughs> the mystery of marriage? Still haven't figured it out, working on it. But he says, I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This whole thing, husbands, yeah, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands, do that. That's all good, that's all well and good, but that's not what I'm talking about, Paul says. I'm talking about you and our great high priest. I'm talking about the groom and the bride. Listen, if you are unsure about your ability to pursue holiness as a royal priest, then do it as a bride. Come at it from that perspective, a bride soon to be wed to the high priest 
of our confession. Now we come to the part I really wanted to talk about. Verse 16. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say, no man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. No one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. I'm only gonna say it once. <laughs> Verse 21. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. Number six, the disabled priest. Can you imagine? You're born into the tribe of Levi. You get to be part of the priestly calling. Maybe you're even among the sons of Aaron, the high priest, which would put you in line for that priesthood, but something goes wrong. Something happens to you physically. We're talking about physical disabilities or deformities or, or problems, disfigurements. In fact, if you look back at verse 18, no one who has a defect shall approach and then it says a blind man, lame man, or he who has a disfigured face. And the word disfigured in the Hebrew is harum. And we would say split or cleft. Which means reading this, my friends, that I would be disqualified from the Levitical priesthood because I was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. Because Pastor Rick was born with a split face, disqualified, cannot serve, you're in the disabled category. I'm like, well, does that mean I can get disability? <laughs> I would be disqualified from priestly ministry. Again, along with the blind and the lame and the deformed of limb and broken-footed, broken-handed, hunchbacks, dwarves, vision-impaired people with eczema, scabs, and even those who are procreationally challenged. What are we to make of all this? Again, come back and think about who we're talking about. This is God. This is our holy God who Jesus fully represented, the exact representation of his nature, so we see the compassionate, loving, gracious God in Jesus Christ, and he says, yeah, if you got a defect, I don't want you coming near. What? That doesn't sound like Jesus. What do we do with this, Lord? God is painting a picture. And he's establishing things in Israel. Remember the things that happened to them are examples for us on whom the ends of the days have come, on the last days have come. So we read about Israel and we, and we apply these things to us. Holiness is the very picture of perfection. You are my royal priest. You are my holy priest. You're my Levitical, Aaronic priests. You must be holy. You must be the picture of holiness among the people. Therefore, if you even have physical imperfections, you cannot serve in the tabernacle. Physical characteristics of absolute imperfection. But royal priests understand the reason he did it was so that we would look at these things spiritually so that we would recognize it's the defects and the disabilities and the imperfections spiritually that should separate us from God. By the way, I want you to think about the contrast. 
The contrast to these imperfections, and it's, it's almost perfect. When it's talking about the groom in the Song of Songs, Solomon's Song, chapter five, verse 10, just listen to this, the bride is singing. And the bride begins to describe her groom. And we can make the illusion, the bride, the church, the groom, Jesus. The groom is the great high priest. So think about how he's described. Listen to this. She says, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of waters bathed in milk, reposed in their setting. This, this groom is not blind. Goes on and says, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh, not split, not deformed. His hands are rods of gold set with barrel, not broken. And his abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon choice as the cedars, standing tall, not like a dwarf, and strong, not all hunched over. His mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem, that's what the bride says to the groom. That's what we say of our Lord Jesus. He's perfect. In both cases, whether it's Song of Solomon chapter five or Leviticus 21, a picture is being painted. A portrait is being drawn. What is on display here is holy perfection. The physical is just a type of the spiritual. Now, I'm sure you get that, that it's, it's not about disparaging disabilities or deformities or disfigurements. It's not about God saying these are lesser people. It's about him saying that if you are among the priests and you have any of these deformities, you can't serve. You're not allowed to serve. And you know what? We all are disfigured. We all have deformities in this fallen world, every one of us. We all have our stuff, we have our issues. What does this say to us though as a royal priesthood? What is the spiritual picture here? Now jot these down, I'm gonna blaze through them very quickly, but note this, we can't be blind. We cannot be blind, a priest of God must have vision. We must see clearly. We can't come to the Lord and serve as though blind. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained or the people perish. But happy is he who keeps the law. We are those who have a vision. We have the prophetic word, more sure, to which we would do well to pay attention. We have the prophetic word of God. We have the vision that the Spirit gives us of how do we go forward and how do we live in this life. We as royal priests must have vision. And secondly, what does he say? A lame man, don't be lame. If you're a, a member of the royal priesthood, a priest of God walks with confidence. We don't shrink. We're not gaslighted easily. Colossians chapter two, verse six, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you remember the confidence you had the moment you gave your life to Jesus? Remember the joy that you felt and the assurance in that moment? 
And maybe it's wavered since then. Man, go back to it. Having been firmly rooted, Colossians 2, 7, being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We have vision. We walk with confidence. What about a disfigured or a split face? A priest of God must speak the undivided truth from an undivided mouth of an undivided heart. We don't speak out of both sides of our mouths. We don't say one thing to one group of people and something else to someone else. We speak the truth of God. We speak what the Bible says without any shame. With confidence again in his word. Proverbs 22:11 says, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The king, I like that. Number four, what about a deformity? It says if, if, if you have a, not only a disfigured face, but any deformed limb. Interesting, the word deformed there is a Hebrew word that also can be translated superfluous. What does that mean? The six-fingered man. It means something additional. It could be like a tumor, something that is an add-on to the normal healthy body or the normal limbs of a person. If there's something added on to it, an extra finger or, or something like that, a tumor, then, then that's not acceptable. He cannot come and serve the Lord. A priest of God does not add to or take away from this word. We don't add the superfluous, our thoughts, our feelings, our ideas. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. As Revelation 21.18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. We don't add something to the word of God as though adding a tumor or an extra toe or a thumb. We offer it as it is. We take it as it is. Adding nothing to it, what about broken hand or a broken foot? Hey, that's easy. A priest of God stands strong and holds on. You stand strong and you hold on, especially in the run-up to the rapture, especially in these last days, especially when it gets difficult. You stand strong in the truth and you hold on to the truth. Hebrews 12, 11, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that that which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We walk in peace as priests of God, standing strong on the truth, confident in it, holding fast to that which God has given us. The seventh thing that was not allowed, a hunchback. Priest of God must stand up straight. Don't curve your shoulders. Got a little backbone, you might say. Have some spine. Our backbone, again, is the word of truth. And knowing God's word, we are not easily intimidated. We are not to be manipulated by fraud or deception. No, we know this word. And if someone comes at you and challenges you with something spiritual and you don't have the answer for it, what do you do? You get right back into this word because I guarantee you you'll find the answer. In all my years of ministry, few though they may be, I have never 
not been able to find the answer in the word of God. Everything here pertaining to life and godliness, Peter said. It's all here. So if someone trips you up, say, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to my Bible and I'll come back with an answer for you. Stand up straight. We are not of those, Hebrews 10, 39, who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So no hunchbacks among the priests, no dwarfs. No dwarfs? A priest of God must not have stunted growth. We keep growing. The righteous man, Proverbs 92, 12. Well, that can't be right. Is that right? No. It'd be like 32, 12. Someone check that. Proverbs 32, 92. Or maybe it's Psalm 92, 12. Someone look that up and let me know so I can let everybody know out there. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I'm thinking that's gotta be Psalm 92, 12. Psalm 92, 12? Okay, so it's not Proverbs, it's Psalms. Psalm 92, 12. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Pretty sure this one's right. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. We don't have stunted growth, we keep growing. We get taller and taller in the Lord, we get stronger, our maturity increases. We are never to be dwarfed in our spiritual growth. Eyes that are defective, he says, can't serve if you have a defect in your eye. This isn't blindness, folks. We already dealt with blindness. This is an obscurity, something that obscures vision. And a priest of God must see clearly. Matthew 6, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. How do we keep our eyes clear? We bring vision, the vision of God, but how do we keep our eyes clear for us? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, Paul is talking there, specifically big picture. You know, if someone gives their life to Jesus, the veil is removed. He's partially talking about Israel, saying whenever Moses is read today, a veil lies over their heart. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil's removed. Suddenly they can see, they understand Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the big picture, but the little picture is this. And I have found this to be true in my own life. And that is the immediate day-to-day, -day, if I'm uncertain about something, if I'm struggling with, with seeing something clearly, turn to the Lord. You turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away. You turn to the Lord, the confusion is answered. You turn to the Lord, the obscurity that is in the way of seeing clearly is removed, and he gives you the answer. He said he would. You're gonna hear a voice behind you saying this is the way, walk in it, whether you turn to the right hand or to turn to the left. God is very clear. If you'll turn to me, I will give you clear sight. You'll know what to do. You'll know where to go. You'll know where to turn. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What about eczema? That's a good one. You can't serve the Lord and have eczema. Well, a priest of God cannot be easily irritated. Hey, it's true. Psalm 37, verse seven, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. 
Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Don't freak out. You know, the last thing a Christian is supposed to be, a royal priest, is a knee jerk. Don't be a knee jerk. Don't be reactionary. Don't be easily irritated. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul said, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Well, Lord, I can be patient with most people. There are a few people I'm just not patient with. Yeah, they're the ones causing your eczema. Don't be irritated. The next thing he says, you can't have scabs. You can't have scabs and be a servant in the priesthood. Well, a priest of God can't be a flake. (laughs) Matthew 21, verse 28, Jesus said, a man had two sons. And the first he came to and he said, son, go work today in the field. He answered, I will not. But after he regretted it and he went. We'll call his name Ron. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. We'll call his name Rick. (laughs) Which of the two did the will of his father? This was me and my brother when we were growing up. Ron would be defiant and then go obey. I would say I'm gonna obey and then be defiant. We were kind of the opposite of each other, and I had to learn that. And I think I've shared with you before, my dad shared this parable with me one day after having asked me to mow the lawn six hours earlier found me watching Gilligan's Island. He said, Rick, a man had two sons. (laughs) He shared them. I never forgot it, never forgot it. Jesus in John 6, 38 said of himself, all kidding aside, I mean, I know it's funny. You can't be a flake. Okay, scabs, don't be a flake. But listen, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There was nothing flaky about the ministry of Jesus He said in John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Remember the food of God? Remember what Jesus said? The food of God is to do the will of the one who sent me. I have food you don't know anything about. Jesus, aren't you hungry? No, 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 I'm I'm eating right now. How so? I'm doing the will of the Lord. Jesus followed through. And royal priesthood, we need to be among those who don't just raise the hand and go, oh, yes, I'm there, I'm so in, I support, I'm, I'm part of this thing. Don't say you'll do it, do it. Don't be flaky. And then the last one, let's just say crushed reproductive organs. I think that's easier. With all seriousness, a priest of God is to be fruitful. Think about this, if a Levite could not reproduce, the priestly line could be dead. And so God wanted that reproduction to continue, that the priests would beget priests who would beget priests, and that line would continue. And this is such an amazing truth about being a royal priest right here and right now, that is when you lead someone to Jesus Christ, they get born again, and they become part of the royal priesthood. A priest begets a priest. So as we make proclamation in our priestly roles, the reason, the the, the purpose is to create more priests 
who then go make proclamation and then create more priests. God does the creating. God is the one who births, to, who causes them to be born again. But our part in all this is to continue the priestly line of the Christian faith. Now, what's interesting in all this is that for all of these restrictions against deformities and defects and on and on, God was not casting out the disabled priest. In fact, verse 22 tells us he may eat the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. The Levite, disabled, defective, any of these problems, was always allowed to eat of the meat of the offerings and the bread of the presence. He took his food from the holy food of God. Only, verse 23, he shall not go into the veil or come near to the altar because he has a defect so that he will not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And so Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. That is to say the provision is for all the priests. There's your priestly disability. God's taking care of them. God's not casting them out. He's not kicking them out. He's not disparaging them. He's just saying, look, if you have a defect, you you have to stay back because this is a very pure thing that's happening here. However, I will take care of you. I'll look after you. I will feed you. And so they all ate the food of God, even the disabled priest. What? What a picture. Do you ever feel disabled? You ever feel defective or disqualified or I'm, I'm not. I, other people can do it. I, I'm too messed up. Listen, please listen. Isaiah 52, 14 tells us his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And that word marred in the Hebrew translates disfigured. The high priest, our great high priest, was more disfigured than anybody. His eyes were blindfolded. His face split by the crown of thorns and the beatings. His hands and his feet were pierced through. His back hunched over. His spine exposed by the the scourging. He was dwarfed, belittled, put down. His eyes were obscured by the very blood that flowed into them, and his skin was bruised and beaten and torn. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, a royal priesthood. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I take such comfort in reading Leviticus 21, because I should be among the disabled priests. And yet God, by his grace, has enabled me to serve in his courts and to eat at his table. All of us together, a royal priesthood. Why? Because he found me in the blood. Father, we thank you for your depth of compassion. We thank you that you found us disfigured. You picked us up defective. You discovered us in disqualified, deformed state, every one of us by our sin, and you gave us new life. You cleansed us 
You caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that, Lord, is our qualification in Jesus Christ. Not anything that we have done, anything we could achieve, nor is it our failures or our own personal past and problems that can possibly hold us back. It is your grace, Lord, that qualifies us for ministry. And I ask Jesus tonight, you would encourage your priesthood. Those gathered here, those listening at home, and the church, Lord, would you just pour out divine and holy encouragement on the church to stand up strong and be the royal priesthood we've been called to be, making proclamation of the excellencies of our God and of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Lord, we just need you to keep us encouraged and to continue to call us out to be the sons and daughters that you created us to be in Jesus. And it's in Jesus I pray these things. Amen.